you probably had the experience like I have where you come across a picture in a drawer or something like that and then all of a sudden you oh, I forgot about that part of my life and takes you back into that, to that what your life was like in that moment and what God was doing in that moment. I had an experience like that with the church. Andrew and I were standing on the stage at South Street Campus and he was casting vision to the people that might join him here at North Aurora Campus in the future. I, looked, I was listening to him and thinking, I was here not long ago with Pastor Sterling dreaming about our first campus and all of a sudden I just had this, just a reminder from God that this is his answer to prayer. This is what he, we dreamed about becoming, a family of neighborhood churches, and it's happening. When I think about Chapel Street North Aurora, the thing that I'm most excited about is the potential for this church to really embody what it means to be a neighborhood church. This building sits dead center in the middle of a neighborhood. That there's a school across the street, there's a care home right around the corner. Even the neighbor's backyards back up to this church. And so when I think about the kind of relationships that we can have with the people who live quite literally on the doorstep of this building, it really excites me. As I'm passing through the neighborhood, I was seeing these signs of keep God close, everyone else should be six feet away. And it was very beautiful to me because it's a, it's a couple things. I'm thinking, if someone is that excited about their relationship with God and that excited about sharing that with the community and that excited about their church, that they want to put up a sign that's notifying the neighborhood of we are here, we're here for you. I just saw that that's a beautiful representation of what the church is meaning to those individuals who attend. The church is meant to be the faithful presence of God in a, in a location, in a community. God's people, long before the church was established, I mean, he says when they go into exile in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, seek the prosperity and pray for the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. And because they're there, they should be a blessing to that place. Well, that's what the church is. We're here, we're sent here. I've actually been really surprised by how quickly God is already getting at work in this community. I've had the chance to connect with the principal across the street at the school. Uh, she's connected us to her staff and we had just an amazing opportunity to start getting to know them, to, to write encouraging notes and prayers to them for how we want to support them. And I've actually been humbled by how excited they are for us to, to come here as well. When construction's happening, you sort of get this picture that there's a lot more going on than just walls going up. There's uh, spiritual work being done. We see it in the neighborhood now. God is building something in more than just the building. When I think about the success of Chapel Street North Aurora, I think is number one that this would be a place of real community for Chapel Street families. That when they come through these doors, they feel that they are a part of Christ's family. That every face that comes in here feels known, they feel valued, they feel welcomed. And then secondly, and importantly as well, that the community feels that Chapel Street is a blessing. I always think about the phrase that's become common now at our church, that we want to be a church, not primarily for ourselves, but for our neighbors. I'm really looking forward to my neighborhood church, doing service and outreach in the community, and as residents of that same community, giving us the opportunity to build relationships with people who live within the neighborhood. As we continue to expand, as God gives us opportunity, and multiply into neighborhood churches, our opportunities to meet more needs, to, re to reach more people, to make a greater impact on those that are hurting, and to do more gospel work around the world grows as well. Seek the prosperity, pray for the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. For in its welfare, he says, you'll find your own. That's what we wanna be, a blessing to the city, a blessing to the community, to this place.
Our church family, many of you, voted overwhelmingly in favor of approving the vision you just saw because we're committed to becoming a family of neighborhood churches. And it's so exciting to see that this is not just something we talk about, but something that's actually happening, that we're doing right now. Let me share with you something else that is exciting related to this vision. As many of you know, this whole project is $2 million, from construction, design, remodeling, the whole thing, $2 million. Many people have already been giving toward this project uh, very generously. And so what remains on the project is $1.1 million. I recently had a conversation with an anonymous, generous donor in our church family who offered to match 50% of the remaining balance of this project. That means if we as a church family can give $600,000, this individual will match $600,000 and will launch our fourth campus completely debt-free. So I'm asking, I'm urging you, challenging you as Chapel Street Church family to consider giving whatever you can above and beyond your regular giving so that this person can match this gift and God can enable us to launch our fourth campus without a single dollar's worth of debt. What an amazing opportunity we have to be part of. Thank you so much for your generosity, your prayers, and being a part of the Chapel Street Church family. Excuse my mask. You guys, I am, uh, I'm so excited seeing that video. One, because the, the videographer guy at this church makes us look way cooler than we really are. But um, also because this is, uh, this whole experience, uh, obviously it's very personal for me, but uh, I'm so humbled by the continual generosity that I see in this church. Uh, I want you to know it's very uncommon. Your generosity is very uncommon, and it is a huge reflection of who our God is and his generosity towards us. And so thank you so much for all the gifts because it's not just this, this uh, large matching gift that we're talking about, it's the continual giving. I mean, Shepherd's Heart this last year has been done in the midst of COVID, now this fourth campus. Uh, the generosity of this body continually reminds me of the generosity of God. And so I wanna say thank you as a member of this church to you uh, for the ways in which you are giving uh, because it reflects back on Jesus. But secondly, I think it's really important as we, we watch that, uh, I just want to think for a second about how incredible this is uh, that we might be able to launch our fourth campus debt-free, that someone is willing to be this generous, because it, it's not just about the generosity in and of itself, it's, it's what that speaks to us about God and how He feels about the Neighborhood Church vision. Uh, that in the midst of everything that's gone on this last year, that we might be able to do this, it should give us incredible en enthusiasm and excitement for what God is going to do in this neighborhood, and through Chapel Street, even in the years to come, that God is, is supplying our every need. He's meeting our every need. It's like a green light for us to keep pressing in, to keep loving our neighbors, to keep seeking this vision of being chapels on our street. Uh, this should really excite us because this is, again, it's uncommon. It's incredible. It's, it's a signpost from God that he's doing great things. Uh, so I just want us to be encouraged before we forget that and run past that quickly. But uh, I also, before we go into God's word this morning, just want to pray. Um, if you have been paying attention to the news this week, you know that there was a shooting in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I never really know how to react uh, when things like this happen. Uh, unfortunately, it's something that has happened before. Um, there's so many mixed emotions of the, the whole tragedy of it. And I, I think as a church, we should pause, we should reflect, because something like this really grieves the heart of God. It really is tragic. And we know that we have a God who grieves with those who grieve, 
uh, and he mourns with those who mourn. And so uh, before we get into God's word, let's uh, seek our Father together and let's just pray for uh, where we are right now as a country. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our hearts are breaking once again as we learn of yet more tragic loss of life, each and every one created in your image. And the violence in Atlanta, in Chicago, in Washington, D.C., in Minneapolis, Charlotte, Seattle, Portland, Libya, Kenya, Baghdad, and all the places that we too quickly forget or never even notice is yet more evidence that our world is broken by sin and in desperate need of your grace. In your infinite compassion, receive our tears and our anger, our shock and our frustration that these cycles of violence continue and even seem to grow worse. Comfort us with your great strength and your peace. Help us to know what to do in our own lives and in our communities, in our nation and in our world. Help us to mourn with those who mourn and to grieve with those who grieve. Give us the courage to confront when we need to confront, to confess when we need to confess and to change when we need to change. Help us to turn our prayers into action that is rooted in the power of your gospel, that we may be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus so that we may join you in the healing and restoration of this world. Lord Jesus, we pray in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, um, we are diving back into Peter this week, but uh, it's been a busy season for me. As some of you guys know, uh, we have got another baby due in just a couple of weeks. Uh, my wife is very excited to evict her tenant. And uh, as many dads do in the last few weeks leading up to the birth, I've been at Home Depot getting things in to build our nursery. And the other day, I was at Home Depot, and uh, right on the way out, I saw this box and it said, sign up for a possibility to win $250 credit for Home Depot. And I thought, well, who's going to pass that up? I'll sign up for that, sign my name, dropped it in the box. And on the ride home, I thought, you know, my wife is going to be so pleased with me. I ended us for a nice opportunity to win $250. I bet she's going to be saying, well done, Andrew. That was smart thinking. So I get home and I go, hey, Janae, you'll never guess what. Were, on the way out of Home Depot, there was the opportunity to win $250. I signed us up. And she said, why did you do that? <laughs> why would I not sign us up for $250? Because there's going to be way more attached to that than you realize. They're going to call us up. There's going to be something else that they want for us in order to qualify that. It's going to waste our time. And I thought, no, she's just cynical. $250, people give $250 out all the time. So I'm waiting, and I get a call that week from Home Depot, and I said, hello. They start talking to me, they say, well, you know, we've got you, we drew your name, it's gonna be another round, but um, there's a few things we need to do first. Uh, we need to send a water assessment team to your house. They're going to assess the quality of the water at your house. It's going to be a 45-minute appointment. You and your spouse both need to be there. And I knew it again that my wife, yet again, right. <laughs> Unfortunate. Unfortunate. But many of us think of Christianity in the same way. We think that there's going to be more to Christianity, that maybe there's going to be all these hurdles that we have to cross, that the deeper we go into a relationship with Jesus, there's going to be some things that we don't like. And there's a little bit of a half-truth to that. There is more to Jesus than we generally expect. There is much more to the calling that he has on our lives, what he wants to do in our lives, but it's actually far better than we think it is. The truth is that more often than not, we don't um, we don't miss the greater things, we actually reduce them. We make life in Christ smaller than it actually is. And this passage that we're going to look at today in First Peter is going to remind us of the, the grandeur of God's vision for our lives and what he wants to do in the church. 
I want to start just by looking at that memory verse that we've been doing. Anybody brave enough to put their hand up and say they've got it? Don't worry, I won't put you on a mic in front of everyone. I want, I want to see if I can do it. This is a great verse. I want to encourage you as families to keep trying to memorize this. Uh, let's see if I can do it and keep my job. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, that's okay. I can still be a pastor. Yeah, this is a really fantastic verse. I love these words, living hope. That's what First Peter is all about. It's about the living hope that God has given us in the person of his son. This is the centerpiece of everything that is. And so I'm so excited to keep going through this. And one of the reasons I really like First Peter is that Peter's a guy that I can get behind. You know, Peter was a blue collar worker. He wasn't someone who stood out before he met Jesus. He was living in obscurity as a fisherman. And then all of a sudden, the son of God appears on the scene and calls him to follow him. So Peter leaves everything behind because no one has ever asked Peter to do something like this before. So Peter follows him. And the other reason I really like Peter is because he's a lot like me. He opens his mouth sometimes just a little too quickly and says things that he regrets later. So we read this story. But what's most remarkable about Peter is that Jesus takes him from being this impulsive, uneducated, kind of obscure guy into being the leader of the church. And we read this letter that he's written to the churches filled with these beautiful images of who Jesus is. And one thing to note about Peter is that the Apostle Paul, whose letters we read as well in the New Testament, a lot of people say about the Apostle Paul that he was so gifted a writer, so talented a thinker, that even if he hadn't met Jesus, he probably would have showed up in history somewhere. But Peter was just a fisherman. And yet he has written one of the most beautiful letters ever written, ever penned, and it has lasted thousands of years and to this day encourages thousands of people. And so this is a testimony. This letter is a testimony in and itself to the power of God to take people like you and me and do amazing things through our lives by the power of his grace and his spirit. And if you remember, the occasion for writing this letter is that uh, this is quite a few years after the church has been built. The church has actually been scattered around the Middle East and there's a lot of persecution going on. The Roman Emperor Nero uh, is doing some uh, pretty horrific things to Christians at the time. And so Peter writes to the churches scattered around the area to remind them of the living hope that they have in Christ. To encourage them and strengthen them in a season where they're afraid, they are tempted to doubt, uh, they're struggling. And what we hear is that he's told us that Christ is our living hope that has caused us to be born again that he's changed our lives, that he's made us new. And no one knew this better than Peter because he'd lived it firsthand with Jesus. And he goes on, as we heard last week, he, he calls us to be holy as Christ is holy, to live lives that are different because of this living hope. It should change how we live. And then this week, he's gonna tell us why. He's told us what, our living hope. He's told us how to live holy lives. Now he's gonna tell us why, why? Why did God do what he has done? So I want to dive right in and talk about this and, and look at this beautiful illustration he gives us of a building and talk about its foundation, uh, it, the building itself, and then its purpose. So if you will read with me, we're in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is what it says. As you come to him, a living stone chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's an amazing passage of of what it is that God's calling us to. And I want to start by talking about the foundation that we're built on, the foundation. You know, I've uh, reached a very sacred point in the life of being a dad, uh, and that's that my oldest kid no longer asks me to build the Legos for him. Now he just takes them and builds them. I'm a little bit devastated by that. I like building those Legos, but he's not quite there yet. He still has a little bit of a hard time. And inevitably, whenever he's building something, it gets to this point where he, things have kind of gone wrong. And he comes and he talks to me about it. He says, Dad, I can't, it doesn't look like the picture. I can't quite figure this out. Uh, and so we go back, we look through, and inevitably he's, he's placed one of the kind of starting bricks in the wrong position, in the wrong place. And because of that, everything else that followed doesn't fit anymore. It doesn't go where it needs to go to build what it needs to be. And I think that that's a really great picture of what God's doing in our lives. See, we need to start by talking about what our foundation is. What, are the, what is the bricks that are laid first so that we can understand what we're becoming, what God's doing in our lives? And sometimes when we don't address this question and think about this question, we can get ourselves lost. And so Peter wants to tell us about what that foundation actually is. He wants to tell these churches who remember are struggling, trying to figure out how to move forward. He wants to remind them what that foundation is. And what he tells us is about the cornerstone. This is what he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Talking about Jesus. And then goes on to say in verses 6 and 8. Through eight, for it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter is bringing up this analogy of a cornerstone. Now, this is something that perhaps we're not as familiar with as some of the people reading this letter in the first century. So I wanted to give us a picture here of a cornerstone and explain what it is that we're actually talking about. So a cornerstone was a very important part of um, uh, masonry construction back in the day, and certainly even today is used a lot. The cornerstone is uh, much larger than the other bricks and would be placed so that the rest of the building could be aligned with it uh, and rest upon it. And actually, if you look at some of the most ancient buildings in the world, if you go to Israel and look at Solomon's temple, the cornerstone is actually still standing there. The Romans uh, destroyed the temple in the first century, the latter half of it, yet they couldn't move these amazing cornerstones. That the historians look at them and, and are not even entirely sure how they were able to move and put these cornerstones where they are because they're so huge. This is a very small one by comparison. And uh, so the cornerstone was incredibly important to the, the foundation and the overall structure of the building. Everything would align with it. Everything would rest upon it. And so what Peter wants to do is he wants to make us think about our own lives and about the foundation of our own lives and ask us this question, what's our foundation? And what he says is that it should be Christ, that Christ is the cornerstone that God has laid. And we can either reject that and stumble because of it, or we can align with him. So there's a couple of things that Peter teaches us about this cornerstone. The first is, is that Jesus is our standard. 
Jesus is our standard. Just like that cornerstone that was placed in order to measure up the whole building, Jesus is the foundation that's been laid down for us to see and understand what it looks like to live out a godly life, to live in obedience to God's purpose for, our, for us. So everything in our life will be measured against Jesus. The way we talk to other people, the way we think about other people, the way that we deal in our profession, the way we love our family, all of this will be aligned with the great cornerstone, will be measured against it. That's a frightening thought to me because I don't think I live up to Jesus. Jesus would say things to his disciples like, I want you to go and love one another as I have loved you because I'm the standard, I'm the measurement. Your lives are to reflect my life. And I wonder if the disciples would be as nervous about that as I am when I hear those words. Because I don't know if I can love people as Jesus has loved people. I don't have that level of patience and calm and kindness and mercy and forgiveness within me. And so I want to encourage you, if you, like me, tremble at that idea this morning, that Jesus is our standard by which everything will be measured, then there's good news. And Peter's good news is that Jesus is not only our standard, but he's our basis, he's our foundation. Jesus is our foundation. This is what Peter said uh, shortly after the resurrection of Jesus when he was preaching to uh, some of the crowds in Jerusalem, in particular to the religious leaders. Now, there's a man that's been healed, and the religious leaders are questioning Peter, like, how did this happen? How did you do this? What's going on here? And Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's really cool to see this passage in Acts 4, so many years before Peter wrote this letter we now are reading, and those same words. There was this staple in Peter's life for as long as he knew Jesus, he knew that Jesus was his cornerstone. Not just the cornerstone that Peter would be measured by and the standard that he would be held up against, but Jesus was also the foundation that Peter could rest upon. He was the one where he could find his salvation and his hope and his encouragement. No one knew this better than Peter because if you remember Peter's story, uh, we know, and we're gonna hear about this in the next couple of weeks as we look at Easter. Peter was one of the disciples who at the very end of Jesus' life when he was arrested uh, and beaten and carried off to a mock trial, Peter kind of lagged behind. And when he got there, he had made a promise to Jesus that he would never betray him. Yet people started asking, hey, do you know Jesus? This guy that we've got over here that's, that's accused, do you know him? And Peter says, no, I don't know him. I have nothing to do with him. And in that moment, Peter knew he could not live up to the standard that Jesus had set. He'd swore to do it. He'd made the promise. He'd sat there earlier that night at a table with Jesus and said, I will go with you all the way. I'll live up to the standard, Jesus. I can align my life with you. And Jesus says, Peter, you can't. But Jesus also said to him that night, but I've prayed for you. Because Jesus is not just our standard that we're aligned against, but he's our salvation, he's our hope, he's our foundation that we can rest upon. Peter learned it, he knew it. After that, he was renewed, he was a changed man when Jesus came back from the dead because he knew more than ever that Jesus was the stone that he could rest on, that had saved him. 
And I wonder this morning, if we ask ourselves this question, what, are, what is our foundation? What is the stone that we rest our lives upon? The thing that brings us hope and encouragement in hard seasons, like this last year of COVID, like the many crises that come in our life day after day. What is it that we rest upon, that we build ourselves upon? Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Is it possible that we, when we're not careful, can lay a foundation other than Jesus, or try to? Is it possible that we can build our lives on something other than the true cornerstone? I don't have my, uh, the, the clever board that Jeff uses this morning, but I do have cardboard blocks. Uh, and so I wanna think about this. This is our cornerstone. This is what we're building our life upon, Jesus. And Peter says that there is no other cornerstone than Jesus. There's nothing else that can support us, that can uphold us. There's nothing else that we can measure ourselves by and set a standard by. There's Jesus, he's been laid down. But are we making him our cornerstone? Are we building our lives on him? Because it's very possible for us to build our life on something other than Jesus, or at least try to. Is it possible that we build our life on things like reputation, what other people think about us? Is that where we draw our hope? Well, people like me, people think good of me, so I think I'm okay. Do we build it on our professional success? Well, I've been climbing the ladder, even in COVID, things have been going pretty well in my career, so maybe, maybe that's what's given me the hope to keep moving forward, that things are really, really well at work. And you know one of the worst foundation stones that sometimes we try and lay? is our spouse. I know I've been guilty of this. Sometimes we try and make our spouse the one that holds us up when things get hard. And the real tragedy of that is if we make the one that we love our foundation stone instead of Jesus, it will crush them. They can't uphold us the way that Jesus can. They are a gift to us. They bless us. See, the truth here is that there are many good things in life, but there's only one thing that we can build our life on, and that's Jesus. Everything else will crumble. Everything else will pass away, but he will stand firm. He will uphold us. This is the real joy of knowing Jesus. This is the real joy of belonging to Jesus, is that God has provided us all we need to know him and to follow him through the person of his son, Jesus. So if Christ is the cornerstone, if we've got everything we need in him, then what's the building? What is it that God's building? And the answer is us. You know, one of my favorite part of, uh, of marriage so far in the, the few years we've been married is the way that Janae and I have changed over the course of marriage. Uh, Janae has certainly changed me in a lot of ways. I am a much better dresser since I have married my wife. And some of y'all out there thinking, no, you still look like an idiot, but... If you could see me before I married Janae, you would be even more embarrassed for me. So just take my word for it. I've got a lot better dressing. I think I've also got a lot more common sense since marrying Janae. She's a lot smarter than I am. Uh, she knows how to handle life a little bit better. But I think I've also changed Janae in a lot of ways. And I've got to be careful because she's in this service. So I'm going to get in trouble if I don't say the right things here. Uh, I'd like to think that I've made Janae a little bit funnier, that I've helped her with her sense of humor. She's very serious and, and I've introduced her to some sillier things. Uh, I've definitely helped her be more forgiving and patient because she requires those things in order to live with me. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of changes in our marriage. And I think in, in all of the relationships in our life, it changes us, doesn't it? To really be in life with someone, to share your life with someone, it changes who you are. And no relationship changes us more than our relationship with Jesus. 
In fact, Peter starts his letter by saying that when we come to him, we are born again into a living hope. We're changed. We become something new. It's something Pastor Jeff talked about last week as well. And, and Peter picks it up here again. He says in 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It goes on to say in verses nine through 10, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. This whole passage is about change. It's about the change that happens in us. You see, God is not just laying a cornerstone, but he's drawing us to himself that he might turn us into what Peter calls living stones. Living stones so that he can build something with us. As we come to Jesus, the living stone, we become living stones that are joined together in him. Isn't that an incredible thought? That what God's doing with us is not simply calling us and then putting us off to the side somewhere, but changing us, transforming us, molding us into living stones, just like Jesus, so that he can build something out of us. When we trust in the strength and the power of the cornerstone, God changes the substance of who we are. Changes us fundamentally. And by his grace, we become the kind of material that God can do something truly great with. Just like Peter, a fisherman who became the leader of a church of thousands. But there's one vital thing that we have to understand about this new identity that comes up in this passage. It's something I think that we neglect. If we go to a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11, it's a verse I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. It's, it's printed on a lot of t-shirts and mugs. It's a, it's a famous Bible verse. And this is what it says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And this verse is, is something we quote a lot. We love it. It's encouraging. It's hopeful. But the one mistake that we make is when we read that and it says you, we tend to think of me personally, specifically. God knows the plans that he has for Andrew Griffiths. Now that is true. But the context of this verse is actually that Jeremiah is writing a message from God, not to a specific person, but to a people, to God's people who are living in exile. He's saying, for I know the plans that I have for all of you, my people, corporately, together, unified, my body. You are God's building project, but not you alone. Not you in isolation. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. All of those are plural. None of them are singular. Christianity, as many have often said, is not a solo spot, yet some of us live like it is. We live in isolation and, and, and separated off from one another. We struggle to get into community and to focus on sharing our lives with one another, being vulnerable with one another. Yet that's what God has made us, a people. Not individuals, but a people, a family. He's grafted us in. And this was something that was very well known in the first century because the church was filled with a diverse range of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. God truly did craft a brand new race of people, a new body of people. And Peter wants these believers to remember, even as they go through hardship and persecution, that what God has done has not sent them out alone to face these things alone, but has made them a people to rest their lives in one another, even as they collectively rest on the cornerstone. 
Now, this is so important for us. It's so important. This is what one of my favorite theologians, D.A. Carson, says about this corporate identity that we have as Christians. He says, our corporate identity as Christians is transcendently important. It outstrips, relativizes, and reduces all other corporate identities. Carson here, when he's talking about this, is he's talking about verse 9 specifically, and he's saying these identities that God has given us by remaking us into a royal priesthood and a holy nation, this corporate identity is more important than anything else. It's what he's given us. And I think one of the darkest ways our enemy seeks to disrupt the work of God in our lives is to make us live in isolation, separated off and individualized. What we need to do as a church in every generation is reassess our foundation, our cornerstone, and as God shapes us, we need to think about ourselves as a people and say, it doesn't matter what my political differences are, it doesn't matter what my ethnic differences are, it doesn't matter what my socioeconomic differences are, God has grafted me into a people. We need to lay down our secondary differences and unify around the one true principle that is true for all of us, and that's that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. I think it is a tragedy when we sit in our churches and we worship the living God and we love and we see how he's loved us, and then we choose who we're going to sit next to because they, they have different beliefs about how a country should run, or they have different beliefs about the way we should live our lives on, on secondary, unimportant things. It's, it's not who we've been made to be. It's not what God is trying to build. His work has brought us together, it holds us together, and when we trust in the cornerstone, it will continue to bind us together. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, when he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So God's building, he's laying us down together. So we've talked about the foundation, we've talked about the building. What's the purpose? What's the goal of this building that God is putting together? We can go back to verse nine and read that again. I think it tells us. Your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are all these things. God has made you into these things for this one reason. One reason, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What's the purpose of God's building project? What's our ultimate purpose? It's to proclaim the excellencies, the goodness, the beauty, the worth, and the glory of our Savior. To make clear to the world all the wonders and the love and grace of who God has made us. Now, in Ephesians 3, we pick this up again. He says, Paul writes, he says, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. These are Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. Everything should be about his glory. The greatest purpose of the church and its members will always be to bring glory to Jesus. In his name. Not to ourselves. It's not about the Chapel Street brand. It's not about our programs and our events and what we think about the world. It is about the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, upon whom everything is measured and built. 
In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's this little collection of questions and answers from theologians in history, and they try and answer some of the biggest questions we have. And my favorite one in there is this. It says, what is the chief end of mankind? And the answer is that the chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I love that little answer. And one of my favorite pastors amends it just a little bit to make it even better. He says, the the chief end of mankind is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. If you want to know how to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you, the answer is enjoy him. Enjoy him. Delight yourself in the Lord. Look at the goodness that he's poured out over your life. Remind yourself of the ways that he's loved you and provided for you and met you and shown mercy to you and enjoy him. Because we have been called to enjoy the God who loves us so that others might see that he's infinitely enjoyable. Can you imagine the difference the cultural narrative about Jesus might be if we as his church, as his body, as his members, actually enjoyed Jesus? Actually delighted in him? We didn't come to church to try and earn affection from him or win brownie points on the religious check chart. We didn't come here so that we could mask ourselves from other people and make them think that everything's okay with me, even though deep down I'm falling apart, I'm anxious, I'm afraid, I'm stressed. We actually just enjoyed him. See, glorifying God and and bringing honor to his name has got to be more than just something that we think up here. It's got to be something that we feel. It's got to be something that we act upon. So how are you proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you in your job, in your marriage, in your parenting, in the relationships with your neighbors around you? Are you enjoying God or are you trying to work hard to earn his attention and affection? Are you enjoying God or are you using him as a means to build something for yourself? Are you enjoying God or are you using him as a mask to make others think better of you? What's the purpose what God is doing in your life. I'm all too guilty of everything that I've just mentioned. I know what I want my cornerstone to be. I know what I want God to do in my life, but the truth is that sometimes I let myself chase other things, put other things there instead of Jesus. And I think what Peter's message to the churches and to this church and to me this morning is to come back to the one upon whom everything rests, and let him bring me purpose, proclaim his excellencies. You know, as we close this morning, I want us to think about something really important for us as a church, especially as we look towards a fourth campus, and we enjoy the blessings and the growth that God's bringing. It's been an amazing season of what God is doing. We talked about that a little bit, but first, we've got to remember what our cornerstone is. It's not about having more campuses. It's not about having a certain reputation as a church. It's about Christ, his glory, that the world might see that he's good, that he's loved them, that he's given himself for them. God has laid that down. Then what God did is he spoke to people like Peter, transformed Peter into what Peter tells us is a living stone. And then through Peter and through Paul and through Jude and James and the other writers of the New Testament, the apostles and the prophets, God started building his church. And he set them up against that cornerstone. 
He aligned them with Christ. He gave them the hope of Christ, that living hope. And the church grew and grew in generation from generation. Despite the persecution and the trials and the suffering, the church continued to be built by the grace of God. And then many, 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 many generations later, God saved a man called Brian Coffey. Loved him. Don't know why. No, I'm just kidding. We love Brian. He's amazing. Yeah. Jesus saved him, rescued Brian, gave him a hope, put that same living hope that was in Peter, in the apostles and the prophets, set it deep in Brian Coffey's heart, put it in the hearts of others that led alongside of him. People like Pastor Bruce, people like Pastor Roger, whom some of us never got the honor and the joy of meeting. And God built his church here, First Baptist Church of Geneva, set that upon the cornerstone of Jesus, aligned it with who he was, what he's done, the apostles and the prophets, and continued to build. And then along came people like Pastor Sterling and Pastor Jeff. God rescued them and loved them and transformed them and shaped them, filled them with that same living hope again. And he set them on that same foundation. And he continued to build his church. And Mill Creek Campus came along. And the incredible honor, ooh, don't knock him off, Andrew. The incredible honor of what God was doing that we're still a part of church, that we're seeing God grow salvation. This church has grown exponentially and it's not about the numbers in the seats. It's about the lives that are being transformed by Jesus, the hope that he's bringing, the living stones that he's laying down and God is building his church. And then in January or thereabouts in 2020, we met a, name, a guy named Pastor Frank who had faithfully been serving a cornerstone community church, a church full of saints that had loved Jesus and sought Jesus and wanted to continue to see his church built in the city of North Aurora. And he brought us in a relationship with them. And he gave us this heart and this, this vision and this opportunity to keep building. And he asked a bald guy from England who's a bit weird, come and join me in this building of my church, be a part of what I'm doing in the world. Chapel Street Church, come and join me of what I'm doing in the world. And he laid that upon the cornerstone of Christ, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, upon all the stories and stories and stories of what God has been doing in this church for generations. And what I'm excited most for is that he's not even done. That maybe a year from now, two years from now, we're gonna see more stones laid upon what God has been building. And it's not just about us, it's not just about Chapel Street Church, it's about Christ Community Church, Trinity Vineyard Church, the River City Church, the well. It's about God's kingdom and his people, his corporate people here in the Tri-Cities area and the church that he's building. And not even just here, but it goes out from across this city in Illinois to across the United States, to Libya, to Syria, to Iran, to China, to Indonesia, God is building his church upon the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. And friends, the greatest honor and purpose of your life will always be that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You, Chapel Street Church, are a holy nation and a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of he who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has loved you. Now go and show others that he loves them too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the honor and the privilege and the joy of belonging to your church. I do not deserve to be here. We do not deserve to be here yet because of the cornerstone. Here we are. 
I thank you for the saints in these seats before me and the stories that you have written through their lives and the others that you have loved through them. God, we pray that Chapel Street Church would always hold you as our cornerstone, that we would rest upon your finished work on the cross and the hope of who you are, and that we would let you build us and shape us, that in generation to generation, more people might know the excellencies of him who has called us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.